0: In this episode of Political Ideologies, I'll be taking a look at the English Civil War in 1642, the events that led up to it and how it affected the relationship between Parliament and the Monarchy. On the 4th of January 1642, the House of Commons, a normally busy and boisterous place, was unusually quiet. The previous day, King Charles I had demanded the arrest of five leading MPs, but the Commons had refused. Now the King himself had arrived. Not only was the King not supposed to enter the House of Commons, but he had brought soldiers with him. The King walked across the floor of the House of Commons and sat in the Speaker's chair. He apologized to the Commons for his intrusion, but said that the five members he saw were guilty of treason and demanded that they be delivered to him. Charles asked the Speaker of the House of Commons if he knew where they were, but the Speaker respectfully refused to help. Charles left the stunned chamber of the House of Commons and realized that he had faced hostility from the people of London, so much so that he was forced to leave the capital for the safety of Hampton Court Palace. The King was not to return to London for another seven years, during which time war tore England apart as never before. In 1649, when Charles did return to London, it was as a prisoner of Parliament. He was found guilty of treason and was beheaded in his own capital. So how did England come to be at war with itself between the monarchy and parliament? Now, by the time Charles I came to the throne in 1625, England was in a kind of unusual position in comparison to the rest of Europe in its relationship between the monarchy and Parliament because we had the Magna Carta signed in 1215 by King John. Um, This document had been kind of forced upon uh, King John by the barons who... Uh, made the king sign this document to make sure that the king was not above the law and that he had to ask the barons for advice on matters such as taxation um, because King John, when he was ruling, was a pretty corrupt uh, king. Uh, In the 13th century, the first real parliaments were held in in England, and it became customary for the monarch to regularly consult with the kind of most important people in England, who are obviously the most uh, wealthy or aristocratic uh, nobles and lords at the time. And by the 14th century, Parliament continued to meet uh, regularly, and the monarch was summoning Parliament uh, when. He was in need of money, usually for fighting a foreign war of some kind. In return for granting the king money, um, Parliament expected to have a say in the way in which the country uh, was run and to uh, make sure that the king actually listened to the things that they uh, felt needed to change in the country or to pass laws um, that they felt were important. And in contrast, in Europe at this time, most monarchies were absolutist monarchies, which means that the monarch had total authority and power over the whole country. Upon the death of Elizabeth I in 1603, who died without um, any children and without a kind of direct um, heir to the throne, the closest uh, legitimate relative to take the throne was James VI of Scotland, who was her cousin. Um, and he becomes James I of England and remains James VI of Scotland. Now, Scotland had had monarchs for hundreds of years and um, but the idea of monarchs still having um, the divine right of kings, a.k.a. that they have been chosen by God and therefore their um, decisions are final and should not be interfered with, was was still very um, prevalent in Scotland at the time. So when James comes to the throne, James Stuart, the Stuart monarchs, um, he kind of brings this idea um, with him and this is what starts to create tension with the English Parliament in 1614 James dissolves Parliament after only 8 weeks um, because Parliament wanted to discuss with James the fact that he'd been raising money without their consent but James closes it down for the next 7 years in 1621 James dissolves Parliament again when MPs continue to push for more rights and he famously says that he'll have nothing more to do with Parliament's Um, And upon his death in 1625, he's succeeded by his son, uh, Charles I, who wants to clearly act more like an absolute monarch, like he sees his kind of, you know, rival uh, monarchs in Europe doing at this time. Such as Louis XIV, the Sun King, uh, building his uh, large palace, his lavish palace at the Palace of Versailles in France, um, and you know ruling in this very autocratic uh, way in which people are almost kind of worshipping um, the monarchs. Part of the reason why England was bit different to the rest of Europe at this time is because of the English Reformation that started with Henry VIII um, in the 16th century, and the way in which he had broken away from the Catholic Church um, and the power of the Pope in Rome and established um, the Church of England based on Protestantism. as the next century wore on, there's actually a new group called the Puritans emerging um, in England, who are even more uh, devout Protestants, who argue that the Church of England is actually still far too Catholic um, and that it's almost like a conspiracy to destroy uh, Protestantism. So Puritans had very different views uh, from the Church of England on how religion should be conducted the emphasis very much being on individuals having a private relationship with God um, without really the need for priests at all. And if there is a role for the clergy, there should be um, very limited uh, in terms of its role in conducting sermons and reading uh, any scriptures. And the Puritans are most famously known for um, telling people to avoid alcohol and um, uh, sumptuous foods, um, kind of getting rid of worldly um, goods and making sure that churches are even more plainer than a Protestant church. Now, during the 16th century, there'd been huge turmoil in England between the Protestants and the Catholics as a result of Henry's decision to break with Ro- Rome. Um, his uh, sons and daughters, Mary I, Edward VI and Elizabeth I, continuously switching between the um, whether England should follow stricter Protestantism or Catholicism, and so when the Stuart kings come to the throne, um, you know they, James the was partly chosen because he was Protestant rather than Catholic, but Charles the first decides to make the decision to actually marry a um, French princess called Henrietta Maria. Who is Catholic, and this, of course, um, starts to create many fears within Parliament that she is going to have types of influences over the King that they do not want um, in the monarchy. Now, whether it's Henrietta Maria or actually just Charles himself um, wanting to promote slightly different forms of uh, religion, Charles certainly uses his influence as a monarch to promote uh, this kind of uh, change, more changes to uh, English religion and he appoints a very controversial uh, Archbishop William Lord to the um, Archbishop of Canterbury position and lots of reforms are put into place to try and um, kind of yeah like return to slightly more Catholic forms of worship, such as, you know, putting stained glass windows into churches, um, allowing priests to wear more kind of colourful clothing and changing the position of the altar within the church to behind a rude screen, which is a more kind of Catholic orientation of the church building. Now these reforms goes far to actually creating a war with Scotland, the land of his birth, um, because of the introduction of an English style uh, prayer book that uh, the bishops of Scotland do not agree with. There's actually rebellions from the people as well about these uh, religious reforms. So all all of this kind of religious turmoil is actually happening during a period known as the personal rule of Charles I, because in 1629, he dissolved Parliament because they were refusing to put through these reforms that he wanted to do. So he closes Parliament down in 1629, and it doesn't reopen for 11 years. And this is when all this kind of, uh, you know, religious turmoil is happening within the country. And alongside that, in 1634, Charles also decides to expand a tax uh, known as ship money. This was an old form of tax which coastal towns would pay um, for protection against uh, hostile foreign ships um, attacking the coastline. But Charles decides to expand it to actually everybody in the country. So to pay it, no matter whether you were living along the coast or not. And of course, because he's doing it during this period of personal rule, it's not going through Parliament, nobody is debating it, it's just a decision that Charles has made um, and he's gone ahead and, and done it by himself. Punishments for, were harsh for people who um, disagreed with um, Charles's policies. So he cut off the ears of three men who had um, argued or criticised his his religious reforms. And actually, the you know people seem more sympathetic to the men that are having their ears cut off rather than supporting the king which is obviously you know conflict is rising between the people um, and the monarchy here eventually in 1640 um charles decides to recall parliament um after 11 years of course he's faced with an absolute storm of criticism for all the things that he's done during this period of personal rule by the um MPs um, and Charles responds by just closing parliament after only three weeks so this period is usually known as the short parliament um, because of its very short nature and riots were breaking out all over um London in support of the MP John Pym, who'd been very vocal in his condemnation of uh, Charles's actions. A couple of months later, in November 1640, um, Charles decides to reopen Parliament again to try and get more, um, you know, money laws passed. But this time, Parliament is in, feels like it's in a much stronger position to make sure that it is Um, going to really stand up to Charles this time. Um, You know, the aim of the parliament is to reduce the power of the king um, and they are kind of unified in their um, mission to do that. So led by John Pym, who had... Uh, led the kind of criticism of Charles during the short Parliament a couple of months before. Parliament passes by 159 votes to 148, a document that's known as the Grand Remonstrance. Um, This is essentially just a summary of everything that Parliament disliked about the way in which Charles was running the country um, and laid out proposals about how Parliament should have more control in the future over reforms for the church, um, the ministers that the king chooses to avoid um, instances like Archbishop Lord kind of making lots of reforms that um, were unpopular. Um, and the, all, all of these things, all of these decisions need to be approved by Parliament. Now, of course, Charles was absolutely furious with this um document and says that John Pym and four others who were heavily involved in creating it are traitors. And that's where we began our story when Charles um goes into the House of Commons stamping his feet. Um famously there's supposedly a tile still in the House of Commons that has like the <laughs> the uh, breakage from where he stamped his feet um, and he tries to arrest five MPs with soldiers in the House of Commons and then he flees um, and this is where the English Civil War actually begins. There are a couple of initial skirmishes um, over the next couple of months. Um, And in June 1642, Parliament essentially sends Charles an ultimatum, uh, which is known as the 19 propositions. If Charles refused to accept these 19 propositions, then there would be a full-on war. So some of these propositions included the idea that every decision Charles makes must be discussed with Parliament. Parliament wanted the control of the education of the king's children um, essentially so that supposedly they wouldn't get grand ideas that you know they have the uh, divine right of kings or that they um, get more Catholic ideas etc and also Parliament should have the um, power to decide who his children would marry um, again to avoid a uh, Catholic relationship because that was a big um, concern for Parliament at the time Parliament also wanted control of the army and all foreign policy. Um, they wanted to tighten laws against the Catholics, um, make uh, the Catholics be treated a lot more harshly and imprisoned and fined uh, if they if they were caught doing things um, that were following their faith more than the Protestant faith. Um, the king had to make sure that any ministers that he appointed were answerable to Parliament so no no appointments could be made without uh, Parliament's approval and the King had to publicly pardon the five MPs he'd tried to arrest in the January. It's probably unsurprising to you that Charles rejects the 19 propositions and he raises his battle flag his standard, his royal standard um, in Nottingham and the civil war um, begins. There are a couple of uh, main battles. Um, they divide into two different camps. So obviously you've got the people that support Charles and you've also got the people that support um, Parliament. The people that support Charles are known as cavaliers um, or royalists. Um, and they kind of look a little bit like the Three Musketeers, let's say, with you know big hats, big feathers in their hats, uh, big boots, um, kind of ruffled... Um, shirts. And then you've got the roundheads, which are the parliamentarians. um, And they are reorganised into what's called the New Model Army under a man that starts to rise up the army called Oliver Cromwell. And he's an MP, but he also is a Puritan. Um, So he's one of these uh, groups of Protestants that were even more um, strictly uh, Protestant. Now Cromwell's Puritan beliefs actually help the new model army to be a very fierce fighting force Um, so things like drinking, swearing and deserting the army were forbidden and any rules that were broken would result in public floggings or um, whippings and he instills this idea that actually they are um fighting for god their god is on their side um and the world would be a better place if charles was not king their armor is also a little bit different as well which is why they're called roundheads because they have kind of uh, rounded helmets and big uh, long pikes and they cut their hair um very short the new model army is a real you know kind of quite terrifying uh, new type of fighting force that the Royalists are not really um, prepared for. In the Battle of Marston Moor in 2nd of July uh, 1644, that's the first clear roundhead victory. Um, And at the Battle of Naseby on the 14th of June 1645, the Royalist army is essentially completely obliterated. A thousand Royalist soldiers are killed, 4,500 taken prisoner, and all of the King's artillery or cannons are captured by the roundheads. And so soon after this, like within uh, the next year, Charles has no option really apart from to surrender. In a way, the parliamentarians had, uh, you know, some ideas that were on their side, particularly the idea of liberty and freedom. They could kind of capture these Core ideas and claim that actually Parliament is fighting for freedom from an autocratic king that is making bad decisions and not involving other people in his decision making. And the royalist cause is kind of, um, you know, weakened by the fact that. It- you need to have loyalty to the king, but even if you believed in a monarchy, quite a lot of people would probably agree that Charles had acted in ways that were not necessarily the way that he should have acted during his period of rule. So All of this throws up really big philosophical questions about what is liberty, what is freedom, how should power, um, be exercised, and by whom and how, um, and that is what we see in the political philosophy that um, evolves from the English Civil War is that kind of um, you know discussion about how the impact of the war actually you know affects people and the country, and whether um, without Charles things were better or worse. Now, even though uh, Charles had surrendered in 1666, that wasn't actually quite the end of the story. He actually spends the next couple of years trying to escape from various prisons um, with varying success. Um, And essentially Parliament's uh, frustration with Charles um, and their willing to negotiate with him to come back to rule becomes like less and less and less, essentially. Um, And by 1648, you know, they've captured him and Oliver Cromwell, who's now kind of, you know, leading other figures in Parliament to um, put Charles on trial for treason. Now, treason is the crime of betraying one's own country, which usually involves a plot to overthrow, you know, the monarch, really. Um, But the argument was that, well, actually, Charles has tried to overthrow Parliament by refusing to, uh, you know, meet with parliament and making decisions on his own and so actually you know he'd committed treason against his own people there's a big a- debate actually amongst the parliamentarians about whether this is even legal to put a king on trial because technically he's head of all of the law courts as well now charles when he's you know sitting in the dock waiting uh, you know for his um trial and during the trial he remains calm he remains dignified but he refuses to accept that this court is legal, um, and he essentially just keeps repeating the phrase that they have no right to try him, um, and you know he's not going to participate in this trial as if it's real because it's all kind of a big uh, mockery. He even refused to remove his hat uh, during the during the trial process. The prosecutors for Parliament, though, of course, argue that Charles had been a bad ruler from the start, and actually, it's his responsibility for the whole civil war in the first place because he refused to accept the 19 propositions, um, and that had caused the war and caused um, so much death and destruction. And so, Charles is found guilty of treason, and the only punishment for treason is execution. And Charles was beheaded. On thirtieth of January sixteen forty nine, outside Bankring House in uh, Whitehall, so for the first time in England's history, it had become a republic. There was uh, no monarch. It's not the first time that a monarch had been, um, you know, murdered or killed, of course, but it's the first time that a monarch had been put on trial and executed um, in, you know, let's say, a legal uh, way for doing, you know, kind of like using their powers wrongly and that there was no other monarch to, uh, you know, kind of take their place. They wasn't being usurped by somebody else. Um, so what happens for over the next 11 years is um, that Oliver Cromwell um, and then later at the very end, his son Richard um, rule England as Lord Protector and they name England um, the Commonwealth. That's going to be the new name of um, you know, England. However, there's soon a really clear problem in that Oliver Cromwell's power is mainly backed up by the army. So in many ways, it's almost like a kind of, um, you know, military dictatorship in some kind of ways. Um, And Cromwell starts to issue laws without um, parliament. He's not really, you know, making parliament uh, sit. Uh, He's trying to enforce his own Puritan beliefs on society. Um, which, you know, changes the way in which uh, England's run. You know, people are not allowed to drink or dance or sing and famously cancels Christmas. Um, and he, yeah, it's kind of like acting like a king almost. Naturally, you know, Parliament uh, offers Cromwell the crown and he declines it, but he is being referred to as Your Highness. He's living in royal palaces and... Uh, When he dies in 1658, yeah, it's his son Richard that takes over. So has England almost, you know, kind of become another monarchy in some way? The crucial thing is that his son Richard doesn't have the support of the army. He was never a soldier. um, Parliament doesn't really respect him. And so he doesn't have that kind of power that Cromwell uh, had. And essentially the army deposes him um, in April 1659 when Richard tries to... Make put more limits on the power of the army, but with the army deposing Richard, there's then nobody in control of Parliament again. So they're kind of like in the same scenario, and you know, there's n- there's no one to to lead, let's say. And so at this moment, Charles the First's son, who's also called Charles, um, h- had been living in exile for years during the um, English Civil War, and he sees his chance to regain. Um, the English throne but he makes a very interesting decision he decides to make a statement which has become known as the Declaration of Breda in 1660 and in that statement he makes several promises firstly he says that he will grant religious freedom for all so it doesn't matter whether you're Catholic or Protestant or Puritan or whatever let's just you know kind of like put an end to that he grants pardons for people who'd fought against his father and also those people who had, you know, even signed a death warrant and, you know, contributed to his execution. And he also says that he'll help to pay the wages of the army that are still owed um, and to satisfy the royalists that there'll be a negotiation about how they can get their lands back that have been previously confiscated from them. Now, this statement from Charles II, well, who becomes Charles II, is uh, read out in Parliament and Parliament go, you know what, Charles is not going to rule like his father. He's going to be different. He's promised this. And actually Parliament just accepts those terms and invites Charles back to England to become the new king. And the following period of um, Charles II's reign is known as the Restoration because the monarchy has been restored or brought back. war is a revolution in every sense of the word there was a war within the country between who should rule the king was beheaded and at the end of the day interestingly parliament decided to welcome back a king but the powers are reduced and it's a very interesting episode in history which affected many political philosophers to work out where does power lie and who should wield it and how